Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. Today we're going to do a podcast on Calvinism. And I must say, it is as if this, it is as if this podcast was meant not to happen. It was not predestined. Um, it was supposed to be part of the sermon from last Sunday. Uh, we were preaching on Philippians 2, 12 to 13, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then it continues, do all things without grumbling and disputing, etc. Um, and we really locked in, first of all, on this fear and trembling and working our salvation, and then moved into the attitude. And we saw that Paul in Philippians is really about share the gospel, uh, tell people about Jesus, but also do the gospel, live the gospel, be transformed by the gospel, and um, kind of do the message and be the message. Um, not that our lives are the message. The message is Jesus Christ, but we, but we embody the message. And I mentioned in the sermon, I won't spend much time on this, but that the fear and trembling is not regarding a potential of losing the salvation. I don't think that's, that's, that's pre present in the passage. I don't think that's on Paul's mind because there are people that need to worry about losing their salvation. Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking people living in open rebellion, open sin, people <clears throat> caught in cycles of sin that don't seem to be making any progress and don't have any strong desire to make progress, people that uh, have rejected Christ, that perhaps at one point they said they were Christian, now they say they're not Christians, and people that only have some sort of a nominal affiliation with Christianity that could say something like, Jesus, we, <clears throat> you preached in our streets and we ate with you. Yes, but I never knew you. So these four people, yes, they should have a, a certain fear and trembling about their salvation. If, if they're living in open and blatant sin, if they're living in cycles of sin and not finding any freedom, if they're, um, it, what was the other one? If they've never made any conscious profession of faith. But as far as I can tell, that is not the context here. There is no sin that Paul is calling them out on. They have a strong relationship with Christ. And Paul calls them saints. He starts off the book, Paul, a bondservant of, of uh, Christ Jesus, and Timothy to the, to the saints in Philippi, along with their elders and deacons. So he's calling them saints. He's saying they are saved. That's not, that's not part of this. So why is there fear and trembling it's because it is God who is at work in us, both to work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we mentioned in the sermon that we should be excited that God is at work in us, but also terrified, you know, legitimately, that this is big. There is no mission bigger than, than the mission God is, at, God is doing, this, this um, the task of reconciling the world to himself, as it says in Corinthians, the ministry of reconciliation that he has invited us to participate in. And God is at work in us. And this is awesome and terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. Like being called to you know, participate in a huge government project or having your president or prime minister ask you, call you on the phone specifically and say, I would like you to help me with this project. Would you like to participate? You know, and you're going to be on national television and you're going to be be making a huge difference in the world. Would you like to do this? Well, maybe you want to say yes, but at the same time, you're terrified. And legitimately so, because important things are scary. But the thing that I didn't have time to look at in the sermon was if God gives us the will to work, then how do we still have free will? And this is a problem that you kind of look at and you're like, huh, that's kind of weird. And then you might be tempted to come back and scratch a little bit more at that issue. And the deeper you dig, the more complex it gets to where it, it, it's an extreme, it's, it's probably the, one of the biggest, most complex issues uh, within Christian theology is how does 
God's sovereignty relate to human free will? And in the sermon I just said, look, there's, there's a rabbit trail over there. There's a sign pointing this way that says caution, Calvinism over there. Uh, just kind of a lighthearted way to say, in our 25 minutes that we have, we don't have time to, to deal with that issue. But I do have a podcast, and so... So we're going to begin this by talking about Calvinism. There's actually four main views on how sovereignty and free will relate. They are Calvinism, Arminianism, Dispensationalism, and Middle Knowledge. And I have a podcast series, uh, it's the first ones in this podcast, on Calvinism. And I kind of lay out the options there. I also have uh, a research paper on my blog at nolongerbechildren.wordpress.com that you can find. And that also relates to this issue. I think it's, we're going to start with Calvinism because uh, this is for Protestantism, and we are Protestants, most of us. Calvinism is kind of the default position. Calvinism was, you know, the view basically of Martin Luther. And uh, he was the person that started the Reformation. And then John Calvin developed it after him, and then after him, uh, somebody called Melanchthon kind of summarized Calvin's views into something known as the five points of Calvinism, which are often expressed in the in the order of tulip, T-U-L-I-P. Let's see if I can get these right. We have total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, limited atonement, and perseverance of the saints. Look at that. So we're going to look at Calvinism first because, like it or not, Calvinism was here first. Luther and Calvin were Calvinists, and that's how the Reformation started. And the other views have kind of developed in contrast to Calvinism. So Calvinism actually dates really back to St. Augustine, and I've got a number of podcasts on Augustine you can go look at in my podcast series in sermons, especially the sermon, How Augustine Changed Me and uh, the Confessions of St. Augustine. Augustine lived in the 4th century, and he's kind of the father of Western thought, Western thought being the foundation of Catholicism and of Protestantism. So Augustine wrestled for a long time with this question of how we can, be, how we can have free will and how God can be sovereign, and, how, and especially the problem of pain and evil in the world, how a good God can allow pain and suffering. And these issues are very much rolled together, and it's very much Augustine's answers and solutions to these problems that are still with us today. So Augustine said that Adam was free to sin and free not to sin. And I did not write down in my notes the Latin for this. I believe it was passe picare, passe non picare. Able to sin, able not to sin. So he was you know, teetering on a knife edge. He could have chosen sin. He could have chosen not to sin. Adam was truly free. He was the only person with genuine free will in the history of the of the world, along with Jesus, which is actually interesting that the only two people, well, the only three people to whom Satan appeared bodily was Adam and Eve and Jesus. After the fall of man, when Adam and Eve chose sin, Satan no longer appeared bodily. Why? Because now there was sin nature. The, the enemy was within. Now there's sin nature. And in Psalm 51, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This idea that we are born with a tendency towards sin. It, it pulls at us. It draws us. We're made in the image of God, but we're fallen, and we have sin within us. So this is... Um, Augustine would say, we're able to sin, not able not to sin. So I believe the Latin is something like passe peccare, non passe non peccare, not able not to sin. Because we don't have the right desires anymore. We can sometimes do the right thing, but our heart is corrupted. So even when we're doing the right thing, we might not have the right desires to do the right thing. And so this is why in Isaiah, it says, even your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and your iniquities like the wind blow you away. And so because we are fallen, 
we are able to sin, we have free will to sin. This is not, it's not saying that we're forced to sin. It's not saying that we're predestined to sin. It's not saying that we're, you know, that we have lost free will. We're able to sin. We have genuine freedom in that direction. But we're not able not to sin. And this seems to make sense of our human existence, that nobody gets to the age of, you know, 20 or 10 or 7 or 5 and is able to genuinely say, I've never done something that I don't regret. I mean, even my two-year-old says sorry, genuinely. Like, he, he hurts somebody and he says sorry, like, I didn't mean to do that. We all know this experience of, of sinning. So then the third condition of man is in Christ we are able to sin and no, we are able not to sin. Passe non peccare, I believe. We are able not to sin. So we have genuine, because God is at work in us, now we're back to Philippians 2.12, because God is at work within us, we have this genuine possibility of not sinning. We have this, because God is working to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because his, our desires are different, now we can do something good because we desire it, not just because we want the glory, not just because we want the credit, but because genuinely we're working out of a place of agape love, as I mentioned in the sermon, where we genuinely, out of the overflow of, of the goodness in our lives, we want to just bless somebody else. And after death in heaven, we will be not able not to sin. And I'm not sure what the Latin is on that. I'm going to guess it's non passe, non peccare, but I think that's wrong. You can certainly look up the Latin on that. I'm just, I'm just mentioning the Latin because that is just one place that people often refer to the Latin to say these are the four conditions of men. But the English rendition of it is, uh, is accurate. So in heaven we will be not able not to sin. That doesn't mean we won't have free will. It means that our desires will be perfected. And that this God working within us to will and to work for his good pleasure, that will be at its, at its apex, at its completion, that our only desire will be to see good things happen, to, to genuinely worship God from a pure heart, to genuinely love our neighbor from a pure heart. So we will not be able to sin because there's no desire. And you need to have the negative desire. You need to have sin nature to desire to sin to be able to sin, and we won't have that desire. So we'll, we'll only have freedom in the direction of God. So if we are truly non passe, non peccare, apart from God, if we are truly not able not to sin, if we have freedom but only in the direction of sin, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, there's no way that, and by the way, just a little bit of trivia here. This word filthy garment, um, filthy garment is a very tame rendition of that. What it means is a menstrual cloth. Uh, you know, they didn't have tampons back then. It was, you know, that was a menstrual cloth. It was the most unclean thing that God could think of to say, when you present me with your righteous deeds, it's disgusting to me and I just want to throw it out. So that's how bad, you know, I've heard pastors in sermons say it's like toilet paper, like used toilet paper. You know, it's, it's disgusting. This is what our good works are to God. And as disturbing as that is, when you think of a good work being like, you know, loving your child or running into a burning building and saving somebody or going to Africa and helping out in an orphanage, and you think, I'm doing a good thing. How is this bad? Well, is it really good, the things that you're doing? Why are you doing it? What's your motivation? Is it to feel good? We have this sense of, we have, doing good things usually makes us feel good. So how much is that the motivation? How much is glory? How much is pride? Are you posting on Facebook? Are you excited about what people will say and think? And before a holy God, you know, absolute morality, real justice. Is it true that your actions really are good or are you just being selfish in a different sort of way? And so if 
our righteous deeds really are that disgusting to God, really are that useless to God, apart from him, then how is it possible even for us to do the most basic thing of choosing him and saying, yes, God, I want to be part of your family, and making that step towards him? It seems as though the only way that we can become a Christian is if God first gives us the will to say yes to God so that we can then join the family. And so Calvinism would, would be very comfortable with this and would just say, yes, exactly. That's the logical conclusion of these beliefs. The only way that somebody gets saved, becomes a Christian, is through unconditional election, that God elects somebody, predestines them, before time, outside of time, however time and, and us relate, however God relates to us, certainly he experiences time differently than us, although God's time is a very complex issue but in some way god says you're going to get saved you're, you're predestined and he goes and elects somebody and it's unconditional when god elects somebody he never fails he never falls short he always it's he's going to succeed in that as jesus talks about in john 10 i have sheep that are not of the sheepfold uh, and um, i'm going to go get them you can read john 10 on your own that um, you know my sheep are mine. Nobody can take them out of my hand. Um, they belong to the Father. They're, you know, these are my sheep. And in Romans, Romans ten, it talks about those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And so, there's unconditional election. God chooses somebody. When He chooses them, then we go into irresistible grace. That you can't resist God's grace. God's going to get a hold of your life and all of a sudden your desires change, your will changes, and boom, you just, you get saved. And this, this happens. The reason that people, you know, that the reason Calvinist exists is because God saves people and people have experienced this. And in some, in some, to some degree, I've experienced this and, you know, everybody who's a Christian has experienced God's, you know, his grace where we he gives us the will to work and and our desires change and you know we're changed from glory to glory as it says but for some people such as augustine you know he was living just completely a godless life and then through this process of being drawn to him all of a sudden his desires changed to where the things he used to love he he now hates and the things that he used to find very boring are now extremely exciting to him and you know, there's many, many testimonies and stories about people that were just, you know, alcoholics or just living a, a normal godless life, uh, living for career, living for for their own pleasures, and all of a sudden God changes them through the prayers of a friend or, you know, they have some nominal association with Christianity and all of a sudden it just clicks and it's real and it, it transforms them. So this is what they would believe, irresistible grace. And then perseverance of the saints, that when you're saved, when this happens to you, boom. I mean, you're, you're, you're good. You're, you're never going to stop feeling that way. God is always going to keep giving you the will uh, to work for, for his good pleasure. The will and the work. So Calvinism, I, I mentioned to a friend lately that it's kind of like the force from Star Wars, that there's a light side and a dark side. There's certain to a certain extent it's really exciting doctrine. It's a it's a really positive doctrine, and then to a certain extent it's a very cruel and dark and morally difficult doctrine. Because on the bright side, you you look at that and you say there there's nothing that I have done to earn my salvation. There's nothing I can do to lose my salvation. You look at it and you say, God is big. I am small. And there's a certain comfort in that, to, to knowing that it's God who's won my salvation. It's not me. It's not my efforts. And this fits very well with what Paul says, that it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That this is completely God at work. This is not me at work. This is God at work. It's biblical. Uh, it makes a great sense of verses like John 10, uh, Romans 9. It it fits. It 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 really ticks off the boxes, and it's logically, rationally consistent. It 
it again it just it makes sense you, you can draw it out on paper you can teach a class you can preach a sermon and you don't have that difficulty of feeling like like you build the puzzle and there's a few puzzle pieces left over and you have this frustration of something doesn't fit everything fits and so it's a tremendously comforting doctrine the problem is what about people that don't choose him what about the people in hell what about the damned there's the elect that have been chosen by god what about the damned who who have been rejected by god so there's a theologian called karl bart and he was writing within the reformed tradition in germany around the turn of the 20th century and as far as i understand from his doctrines and his ideas he went the direction of saying god's election and foreknowledge is or god's election is so strong and his character is so good that we can have genuine hope that he is going to someday elect everybody and we don't know exactly how that's going to work after death perhaps there's some sort of purgatory or he was very fuzzy and unclear about how it would all work but god is free and god god's election overrules human free will and when i wrote a paper on that that likely i'll release soon i called it hopeful agnosticism because it seemed to me like karl bart was agnostic about what god would do what the condition of the damned was but he was hopeful that he he genuinely he had genuine hope that god in his freedom would someday choose to elect everybody and this has been popularized by rob bell's book love wins that you know someday god's everybody's gonna get saved uh, is kind of the gist of rob bell's uh, ideas that came out in you know 2007 2008 very much not so popular now but made a huge impact on my generation and still certainly is a book that gets gets passed around most evangelicals would not go that direction for the simple reason that you know jesus talked an awful lot about hell as a real reality as something that is you know worth avoiding as something that's terrible he said don't fear man that can kill the body but after that they have no power over you rather fear god who can throw both body and soul into hell body and soul and christians believe in a bodily resurrection it talks about this in revelations 20 and 21 at the end of the bible that our bodies will be raised to life and our bodies will either live on in heaven or will live on in hell that means we're going to have bodily pleasures in heaven and bodily pain in hell that's just the clear simple reading of scriptures and in revelation it talks about their smoke goes up before the throne forever and ever that this is eternal this does not have an end and it's conscious jesus talked about in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and so it seems as though hell exists as a real reality as a terrible place that many people go jesus said narrow is the way that leads to life and few there are that find it but broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there are that go that way and that's why it's so important that we share the message uh, and jesus talked about it at the end of the book of matthew matthew 28 uh, is it 14 to 18 or something go therefore and make disciples teaching them to observe everything i've commanded you and lo i'm with you always even to the end of the age and paul says in, in romans 10 how shall they believe without a messenger as it is written how blessed on the mountains are the feet of them that bring good news so it, it's important for us and again in corinthians it says we have been given the ministry of reconciliation that god has made a way of salvation he wants to be reconciled with his people but we have that task of sharing the message with others so hell exists heaven exists people that are in heaven are there according to calvinism people that are there are there because they were unconditionally elected outside of time they were called through irresistible grace and they will live the rest of their life um, with the perseverance of the saints they're going to make it there's no question there's no doubt so that's the light side that's the happy side that's the sleeping peacefully that's the you know preaching with confidence that's the feeling really secure about your theology part of it but the problematic part of it is what about hell what about the people that are there uh, 
it seems like the opposite of this needs to apply to them, that they are there because they were elected to hell before all time. They were not given grace, and nothing they can do can change that. And so some Calvinists at this point will kind of buckle under the pressure of this and say, well, no, no, I mean, we all choose sin because of free will, and God elects some because of his goodness. But the people that go to hell are are there because of their free will. And yeah, I can see logically consistently how that works. But if God has the ability, the true ability to override our free will, to give us the desire to do good, to will to work for his good pleasure, and he only does that for some people, isn't he choosing not to do that for some other people? If you show up with a lifeboat that has a capacity for 100 people, and there's you know a shipwreck, and there's 50 people in the water all flailing for life, and you only choose to save three of them, and then you leave, well, aren't you condemning this other 47 people to death? It, it seems like it. it. It doesn't seem rational to say you're choosing to give life to these people, but you're, the absence of a choice is still a choice. And if, if we, you know, in our, in our liturgy at our church, we, before communion, pray for forgiveness for the things we have done that we shouldn't have done, and the things that we should have done that we did not, the crimes of commission and omission. And it seems that, that this is this encompasses everything, that there's things you know, we did that we shouldn't have, there's things that we should have done that we didn't. That's, that's responsibility for actions. And so it seems as though God, too, has this responsibility that if he could save people and he didn't, then he's choosing not to save them. This is where there is a big debate within Calvinism on limited atonement. This is the L from Tulip. Because some Calvinists would say, well, yes, it's true that we're elected, we're called, and every, and all that. But, you know, when Jesus died, he truly died for the whole world. God loves the whole world. It was only effectual for the elect. And then you have the more hardline Calvinists that are what's sometimes called a five-point Calvinist that say, no, when, God, when Jesus died, he died only for his elect. God only loves his elect. And... The others are predestined to not be elect. They are damned from all eternity past, if we want to use that terminology. This is sometimes called double predestination, that people are in heaven because they were predestined to go to heaven. People are in hell because they were predestined to go to hell. And this is what I would see as kind of the dark side of Calvinism, because it seems inescapable. For one thing, it's hard to reconcile that with the loving nature of God. And if, as it says in in 1 Peter, God is not slow regarding his promises, but is patient towards you, desiring for all to come to repentance, that there is a genuine desire in God for people to go to heaven. He would wish that all human beings would go to heaven. How does double predestination and five-point Calvinism fit with that? Because it seems that God has the tool in his tool belt to make everybody go to heaven. He just has to give them the will to work for his good pleasure, and they'll do it. And somehow, potentially, it seems as though he's able to give people will to to work for his good pleasure without overriding their free will. So why doesn't he do this? It seems as though Karl Barth might be onto something that maybe maybe he will. Maybe there is some way that this works out. But then if that's going to work out, then what's this deal with hell? So it seems to... It seems more consistent to talk about double predestination if we're going to go to that road of talking about predestination. But how does that square with God's loving nature? As well, we've got at least five major problems that come up with Calvinism. First of all, why should we even preach the gospel? If people are getting saved and going, or if people are elect or damned based on God's predestination and God's action then why should we do any work at all? Why should we preach the gospel? It doesn't seem like we're making any difference. Why should we even pray? God's already decided what he's going to do. God's already decided his plans are fixed and unchanging. Why should we try to live a holy life? You know, this verse says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? If, if we're already predestined to fail, if we're already predestined to succeed, how does that matter? If we're really, really struggling 
say, with you know a sin issue that comes up over and over and over, and we can't seem to find freedom from that, shouldn't we at some point just say, well, maybe I'm not predestined. Maybe I'm not one of the elect, maybe one of the damned, so I just need to give up. This actually happened. Uh, I mean, all of these things I'm sure people have believed. But I was in a, a Facebook forum and, and somebody shared kind of vulnerably on Facebook, as sometimes happens, look, guys, I'm struggling with pornography. Please help. Please pray. Give me some advice. And a bunch of people were posting advice, you know, be courageous, keep fighting, you know, here's a good book to use, find a mentor. And one person jumped on, I guess a five-point Calvinist, and said, at some point, you just need to admit that you're not elect. You're going to hell, that you're one of the damned, just give up. And people were like, what? Like, seriously, how could you believe that? And the guy stuck, stood by his guns and he was like, well, I'm a Calvinist and I think that some people are elect and some people aren't. And if this person's struggling like this, like stop torturing yourself, just, just give up. And that does seem to follow logically from Calvinism. Why don't we just give up? Everything is just predestined. Everything's written in stone. Uh, it's similar to the old Greek idea of fate where, you know, which leads to fatalism which leads to there's nothing that we can do. So let's just let our hands hang limply at our sides and let the world happen to us. And, you know, fifthly, how does free will actually work? And it seems like, well, maybe we don't need free will. Maybe we can just say, well, it's God that does everything. And maybe that's part of his sovereignty. Maybe that's part of the greatness of God. But if you take free will out, everything starts to fall apart. What does sin mean if there's no free will? This is just God choosing something? Well, God can't choose sin. God can't. So if, if we don't have free will, how does sin work? How does righteousness work if there's no free will? How does, you know, the whole Christian story doesn't seem to work without free will without free conscious decision to do right and do wrong. The problem of pain, the problem of evil, which is the most difficult problem for Christians to answer, which is kind of this fundamental question at the heart of Christianity that God allows pain and suffering because he allows free will. He allows free will so that people can have genuine choice and genuine worship and genuine love. But if there is no free will, then why is there pain and suffering in the world? If God just made a bunch of robots, why didn't he make happy robots that would do good things? And so it seems as though if we go down this direction, we get to these really difficult problems. And I've heard Calvinists answer some really good answers to these questions. I've heard other Calvinists kind of dismiss them and say, well, that's just, that's just mischaracterizing us. But I don't think it is. I think these are questions that arise naturally. This is the logical conclusion a five-point Calvinism, as far as I can see. And Calvinists that I respect would retreat at this point into mystery and would kind of make this leap over to simple obedience to scriptures. And I appreciate that because they're going to say, look, we're told to preach the gospel. We are told to pray. We are told to live a godly life. We are told to keep fighting in the struggle against sin, no matter what. Keep, you know, keep pressing on. And all of scripture is predicated on free will. And so there's got to be some way that this works together. But even if we can't figure out exactly how it works together, this is what we're told to do. So we need to obey this. We need to do this. But that being said, that admission that there is some mystery, there's things that we don't understand, naturally opens the door to maybe Calvinism isn't the only way to do it. Maybe we don't have this completely figured out. Usually we talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Arminianism, not to be confused with Arminian, uh, the, the ethnic group in, in uh, Europe that was, um, that was persecuted recently uh, in the 20th century. But Arminian, uh, following Jacob Arminius, uh, was uh, a later, he, he came in the generation after John Calvin, and he developed his views in contrast to 
uh, Calvinism. And I'm not going to get deep into that, but basically what Arminians would do is place a heavy emphasis on free will. And wherever the Bible says predestination, they would kind of substitute that for the concept of foreknowledge, that God knows the future. He foreknows people to be saved, uh, but people get saved or not get saved based on their free will choice, which seems to make a lot more sense in the day-to-day -day living of our lives. That, And also it makes more sense as far as why are people going to heaven? Why are people going to hell? Why is there evil, pain, and suffering in the world? Well, that's because of free will. Why do we pray? Well, because we can actually change God's heart. We can change the future. God foreknows what we're going to do. God foreknows what, how we're going to change the future, but we're actually changing the future. We're really making a difference in the world. So it seems to make more sense. And it seems as though um, Arminianism is a more natural way to live. It's a more natural way to read scriptures. And so there's a certain popularity to it. I do want to mention that there's kind of two forms of Arminianism, I would say probably. One of them is a less, I could call it a less reflective form, but perhaps it's one that is less influenced by Calvinism. Because Arminius was, uh, John Calvin picked uh, Theodore Beza as his successor uh, and, and kind of the next theologian to to hold on to his ideas, kind of the Timothy to his Paul, so to speak. And then Beza taught Arminius, but Arminius ended up, not as a successor necessarily, but he was specifically taught by, by Beza. And Arminius rejected it, but he rejected it from within Calvinism. He was explicitly working with Calvinism and answering Calvinism. And then John Wesley later on, um, developed his views as well of Arminianism, but working against Calvinism. And if you want an interesting read on the interplay, the dialogue, the discussion between Calvinists and Arminians, uh, you can look at the, the correspondence between John Wesley and George Whitfield, who were two very important um, revivalist preachers in the early 18, in the 1800s somewhere, I forget exactly where. And one of them was Calvinist, George Whitfield was Calvinist, and I believe he was working in, um, in England primarily, and then uh, John Wesley primarily was working in the States, uh, and John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. And so these two you know, had it out and debated these issues. And the main thing that is important for us for uh, this discussion is that um, John... Wesley believed in provenient grace, that yes, we are, he did believe in total depravity, the first point of five-point Calvinism, that we are completely fallen, we are completely lost, we have no desire to do good, we are fallen in nature and in choice. But he believed that God gives everybody a certain amount of grace, and this is called provenient grace, because it just, it goes out to everybody, and so everybody has enough grace that they would be able to make the right choice and turn towards God. And so, you know, for a Calvinist, it's total depravity and limited atonement, irresistible grace. And for, you know, an Arminian, it's, yes, it is total depravity, but it's unlimited atonement, and it is, you know, conditional election that if you respond to this provenient grace correctly, then you can enter into salvation. Many Arminians just don't go quite this far or perhaps haven't really had that hard head-on collision with Calvinism where somebody's really sticking it to them and saying, what about original sin? What about, you know, we, we're so depraved, we have no will to do the right thing. How could we ever choose God? Many Arminians just haven't got that far or haven't asked those questions. So they simply say, you know, we just, this is, I'm just reading the Bible. It says we need to pray. I'm just reading the Bible. It says we need to share our faith. I'm just reading the Bible and it's saying free will is a big deal. It, it exists. So yes, I know God is in control, but this is though I have a certain amount of responsibility. Now, just to round this out very briefly, the third view that I see is dispensationalism. And this is the view that 
we get saved or we don't get saved based on our free will. But once we get saved, we can't lose our salvation. So there's kind of this one-way valve into the kingdom that once we, you know, we get saved through provenient grace, we get saved based on us. But once we're in, then God overrides our abilities and we're not able not to sin or not able not to to choose him. And so sometimes this is called four-point Calvinism, that they believe in the perseverance of the saints, but they don't necessarily believe in unconditional election or uh, irresistible grace. And so for, for our purposes, the dispensationalism and Arminianism you know, are, are kind of similar as a contrast to Calvinism because for both of them, we choose God. God, well, he's a gentleman. He genuinely stands back and says, here's a free choice, make up your mind, and based on what you choose, that's going to affect your future. Now, the big problem, there's a number of problems with both Arminianism and dispensationalism. Probably you know, one real big problem is that it has a hard time really dealing with Romans 9, that it seems as though God really does predestine certain people. You know, you can read Romans 9 on your own if you'd like, but it says, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. It says he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He, he chose that these people before they were born would have a negative purpose in history. He chose them, he elected them, and they worked out of the, this is how it happened for them. They had a negative outcome to their lives because of God's choice. So scripturally, it doesn't seem to make sense as far as these problem passages of, of Romans 9, for example, as well as Philippians 2.12, that God gives us the will to work for his good pleasure. The other problem that Armenians continually bump into is predestination actually is not the same as foreknowledge. And you can see this because, at least in Romans 10, it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So these are not the same two things. And often Arminians will, you know, will treat them as though they're the same thing, but they're not the same thing. Foreknowledge means knowing something ahead of time. Predestination means you're deciding beforehand how something will happen. Foreknowledge is knowing that the sun will rise tomorrow. Predestination is deciding that I will rise tomorrow. And of course, as humans, we foreknow and we predestine imperfectly, but God foreknows and predestines perfectly. And it, there's many scriptures, if you just do, you know, search into Bible Gateway and look for this, the word predestination, it comes up quite often in scriptures. It's an important past. It's an important idea. And you need to grapple with it and Armenians and dispensationalists are going to have a hard time with that. And if you think long enough about it, foreknowledge doesn't seem to make sense with free will either, because if God truly knows the future, he really knows it, he knows exactly what's going to happen in the future, then how can it be that I actually have free will? I might be praying for something, I might be working towards something, but God already knows what the future is. And God is so happy about the future, he's actually predestined that this is the future that's going to be, if we're going to be faithful to Romans 10. So in, in what sense am I actually free? The, the future is all laid out for us. It, there is no flexibility. God already knows it. So how am I free? This is one objection that Calvinists will have. The other, perhaps a danger, this isn't Arminians don't have to go this direction, but more and more of them are these days, is moving the direction of either process theology or else open theism. And what, what this means is that process theology is the belief that God himself is changing and evolving and in the process of being, becoming something else. And open theism is the belief that God doesn't actually know the future. And this, this direction is profoundly problematic. Uh, I, I, f I feel very strongly about this, that this is not a good direction to go. Uh, there's some points of doctrine that I feel like 
you know, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat, so to speak. There's, It's fine if you want to be a Calvinist. It's fine if you want to be a dispensationalist. It's fine if you want to be an Armenian. I, I truly believe that because I know a lot of great Christians in each one of these traditions, and I feel fine about them. I know that there's a way to be faithful to scriptures and to God from each of these. But I am profoundly unsettled by open theism because it 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 denies the fundamental concept that God knows the future. And if God doesn't know the future, then how do we really know that sin will be dealt with? How do we really know that heaven and hell are real? How do we really know, you know, that the most basic things about the future will happen? And how do we really know that God is is in control? It seems as though he 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 lowers himself down in this theological system to becoming something like a smaller god or like a demigod that's sitting back and waiting for humans to make their decisions and he's like oh man i hope that enough people choose me because otherwise heaven's gonna be an empty place uh you know and, and it it feels as though there's this vulgar sort of an interpretation of god that is not god it's not worthy of god it's not fitting uh, to think of God in that way. And process theology, I think, is just very, very wrong, uh, very abominable, if I can use that word. I think that it's it's very, it's very a very wrong characterization of God to think of God as changing and evolving and becoming something that he was not. Because it actually deifies, because it actually deifies man, humanity, because, okay, God is evolving, God is changing. How is he changing? Well, his knowledge is changing. How is his knowledge changing? Because day by day, he learns more about the future. How is the future propelled forward? It is through human free will that the future is altered. So human free will is changing the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is the future of God. So humans play a decisive role in the evolution and growth of God. Humans are in the driver's seat. God is in the passenger seat. This is the problem with process theology and with open theism, which I think is is profoundly acidic to the Christian faith and, and very unhelpful for us to move that direction. So again, I think that Calvinism is onto some, some good things, but how do we reconcile that with, with our day-to-day Christian life? Some people have said, you need to preach like a Calvinist and pray like an Arminian. Or you need to um, do theology like a Calvinist and live like an Arminian. And yeah, in your day-to-day life, maybe that works. But how did, how did the two actually go together? I do think that Calvinism has a better way of safeguarding the important doctrines of God. In one podcast, I said that I am... A reformed Mennonite. I have reformed theology and a Mennonite life. I say sometimes that I have a reformed mind and Mennonite hands. Uh, that's I, I kind of want to bring these two things together. That being said, I've never taken the step to saying I'm a five-point Calvinist. For these reasons, I've already stated these five, at least these five things that, you know, preaching, prayer, life, um, sin and free will. I I don't see how those completely fit. But I would much rather sit and listen to a John Piper and a Mark Driscoll because I feel like theology really matters and your central theology and doctrines of God, if you get those right, then the rest of your life is going to work out right. The rest of your theology is going to work out right. The rest of your doctrines are going to work out right. And I think that Calvinism does a better job of safeguarding these essential doctrines. I think Arminians can, I mean, some of the most godly people I know are Mennonites and are Arminians. I don't say that lightly at all. These are people that raise their families well, that lead their churches well, that pray hard, that live a good life, that are good missionaries. But I've seen that when you go further up in theology, and perhaps you're going to be you know, a lifetime theologian or you're going to be a Bible school teacher or something. If you keep going too far with these Armenian ideas, it, it goes in a negative direction. 
So is there a way that we can tie these two together? The belief that I have gravitated towards is called middle knowledge. And middle knowledge is the belief uh, developed by Molinus, who was actually a Catholic uh, during the time that these things were being hammered out and, and thought through. Uh, Calvinism for a time was actually quite popular within the Catholic Church, um, which is why uh, Blaise Pascal uh, was, was influenced by that, also a Cal uh, Catholic at the time, before Catholicism kind of hardened as well and turned into what it is today. But his belief is that God is outside of time. So most, many Christians would believe this in, in one way or another. Either he's before time or else he exists in a timeless state and he's able to see time moving past him or moving along, but he is not in the stream of time. And since he's outside of time, he not only knows the past and the future, what has happened and what will happen, but he also knows what could have happened, what would have happened. And this is what Malinus called middle knowledge, that he knows what's kind of in between these two. He knows what did happen, what will happen, and what could have happened. And so based on this knowledge of what could have happened, this middle knowledge, and this is sometimes called the possible worlds, the, there's all these possible worlds, things that could have happened. This is an old concept that's, you know, this old philosophical concept of possible worlds that you can study in great depth if you go to philosophy classes. But based on the, these possible worlds, he has foreknown what will happen, what could happen, and then he predestines what will happen. So he knows what Pharaoh would have done in any possible world. He knows what he freely would have chosen in all these worlds. And based on that, God chose Pharaoh to fulfill his plan and his purpose in this world. And now he knows what Pharaoh, well, what Pharaoh did in the past, but he also has chosen me. And based on what God knows I would have done in any possible world, he's created a world in which I will do certain things. And God knows already what I'm going to do because he knew what I would have done in any possible world. And he knows what I'm going to do in this world. And so in this way, it seems that we can do justice to Romans 9. It seems like we can do justice to any of these passages because humanity is totally depraved. The only way that we are saved is through provenient grace and through, well, through God's grace working in us, giving us the will to work for his good pleasure. But he also knows what would have happened if he had, well, no, I guess actually the, this is just occurring to me now that this doesn't quite fit with Calvinism because this has to, Calvinists would believe in unconditional election. So his potential worlds would be very simple. If he had given everybody irresistible grace, everybody would, would believe. Um, whereas I guess this does have to work within an Arminian system that God gives provenient grace to people and he knows what they would and would not do. But I do think that middle knowledge does a much better job of bringing together sovereignty and free will and understanding how God can be completely in control and yet we also have free will and our decisions really matter and we actually make a difference in this world. When we make a difference, it's the difference that God knew we would do and it's the difference that God has predestined us to do and that God has foreknown us to do. But our actions really make a difference. How do they make a difference, you ask? Well, as I do something today, God knew that I would do that in any possible world. And based on his knowledge of what I would do, he foreknew me. And based on, my, on his foreknowledge, he predestined me to do what I'm going to do. And he gave me the will and the work to do it. So, you know, there's cycles and it is kind of circular and it's flattened because God is outside time. So there's no causal link in time. And so it does kind of break down and it does kind of fall apart. And I do recognize that there's some incoherence there. But to me, it's it gives me that ability to say God is in control and I am in control. And these two come together. So I'm not completely convinced by middle knowledge. I don't, um, well, I do subscribe to it. I just don't know that it completely answers everything and it's not completely satisfactory as a theory. I just think that it is, um, it has fewer problems than the other theories as far as I'm concerned. And 
most of the time I end up listening to Calvinists because uh, I feel as though um, they end up doing a good job doing theology. But when, when they hit their real, you know, get on their on their on their soapbox and, and start proclaiming about five-point Calvinism and unconditional election, I kind of drop back to thinking about middle knowledge because this is kind of how I resolve this problem for me. That being said, we're bumping up against mystery here. And we cannot know how an eternal, omniscient God interacts with us. I don't think that we can know this. I don't think that, you know, God is outside of time. And I don't think, like, that that just blows the mind because we are within time. We can't even imagine how that could work. But our decisions, actions, and words have real eternal consequences. And that has to be honored. That has to be validated through our theology because it's very, very scriptural. That being said, God is never surprised by what we do. He already knew and he predestined us to do what we're going to do. In some way, we're, we're going to see someday that everything fit and that God was in control all along. That also, I believe, is very scriptural. And if you are a Christian, if I'm a Christian, it's because God chose me. And in the mystery of his foreknowledge and predestined, he saw who I was, he chose me, and he predestined me to do the works that he prepared for me beforehand. So in summary, there's a mystery here. There's a profound mystery in how God works and how we work. There's a profound mystery in how God chooses and doesn't choose. And there's this mystery on how sovereignty relates to free will. And everybody, every honest theologian, I think, needs to admit that there's mystery. And the main difference between myself and a hardcore Calvinist is going to be that the Calvinist is going to say there's no mystery regarding the fact that God predestines some people and the fact that God doesn't predestine other people. That's not a mystery. There's no mystery in how free will and sovereignty relate because God is sovereign and we don't have libertarian free will. End of story. The mystery is then how we get from there over to living our lives. And they just say, well, you know, that's a mystery, but we need to be obedient. I respect that, but they have mystery. The mystery is the connection between, you know, the five points of Calvinism and your day-to-day -day life. Um, I would tend to say that the mystery ought to be on God and how he elects and how he interacts with us and how he thinks and how he experiences temporality from his intemporal how he experiences time from his vantage point of outside of time or before time or in a different time, however that works. And so I also have mystery in my system. I've told you that I think that middle knowledge is somewhat insufficient, but I like that it puts the mystery on God that we don't, that we don't know exactly how it is that God knows, but God knows God predestines and somehow he honors free will in his choice. So that's all very mysterious and big and beyond us. But what is very clear is that we need to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We need to share the gospel. We need to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to work to make that a reality, to work in our own lives, to work out our salvation, and to work to share the salvation with others. We need to wrestle against sin to the point of um, sweat, tears, and blood, as it mentions in Hebrews, that you have not yet resisted to the point of blood. We need to fight with everything that we have against sin. Even if we fail and fail and fail and fail, we need to get up and try again. The righteous man may fall ten times, but he gets up again, as it says in Proverbs, something like that. And free will genuinely exists. Otherwise, everything seems to come crashing down around us. But although free will exists, we can take comfort in the fact that it is God working in us. And we can take comfort in the fact that it is God working for his good pleasure, and this is something that sometimes gets lost in this whole discussion, is that God is actually good, 
and his pleasure is good. His desires are good. And we're working according to his good pleasure. He is passionate about this, and he cares about this. He does not desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so that seems like a good place to close, um, that God is at work, and he's giving us the desires, and he's giving us the ability to work, and his desires are good because he's a good God. Josiah Meyer for the No Longer Be Children podcast. If you'd like to hear more podcasts, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. And you can go to josiahmeyer.com to have more content. And patreon.com slash josiahmeyer. You can subscribe for as little as a dollar a podcast to have insider access and also to give back and help with the cost of running this podcast. Thank you all and have a great day. Bye.